you to hear God's word this morning. These passages should sound familiar to you. We'll be covering several different texts this morning. If you want to turn to Exodus 1, we'll start there and then we'll get into the book of Daniel. So if you just want to kind of mark those with your thumb or a piece of paper, we'll be in Exodus 1, then we'll go to Daniel 3, Daniel 6, and then into Acts 4. So I will get these texts to you afterwards if you have a hard time. We have a lot to cover and little time to cover it in, so we want to give you time to visit the deacon ministry tables. As you turn there, I just want you to hear our text, our primary text from last week. So hear what God's Word says in Romans 13, the Apostle Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, writes, Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, Honor to whom honor is owed. And then we hear this from the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now last week, By God's gracious providence, we came to this text in Romans 13 coming right out of a week of of difficult political turmoil in our country, coming out of a, a week in which many questions were left unanswered. And we came to this passage and we looked at, regardless of who sits as ruler, as leader of our nation, regardless of if you are in full support of that individual or if you are not, God's word is very clear. God's word says to submit to the ruling authorities, the governing authorities. And we looked at various texts in the book of Titus 3.1 and in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that called us to not only submit but then to also pray for our leaders. 
And so I left you hanging last week, so to speak, as we went through that and hanging on this question of, is it ever appropriate that we would not obey our leaders, that we would not submit to them, that we would defy them? When is it appropriate for civil disobedience? And so as we answer that question this week, I would contend to you first and foremost that if you missed last week, please go back and listen to last week's sermon because last week's sermon provides important context for this week's sermon. But I do want to just remind you of the four key points from last week. Four key points to get it back in our mind before we ask that question about civil disobedience. Here's the four key points. First is we talked about the truth from Philippians that our primary citizenship is in heaven. Our primary citizenship is in heaven. That informs the way we live as citizens of the United States. Our second key truth was that as Christians we are called to submit to governing authorities. That's the clear call in, in Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, Titus 3. We just heard two of those. But we do that, why? Because key point number three is what? That all authority is granted by God. That he reigns supreme. That he reigns sovereign over all. The, the governing authorities that we submit to are local in authority. No matter how great and how powerful they are, they're local in authority. God alone is universal in authority and sovereignty. And our final truth that we discussed was that the Christian should be a model citizen. So our default posture should be one of civil obedience. Our default posture is not one of civil disobedience, but one of civil obedience, because we are indeed called, first and foremost, very clearly by Scripture, to be model citizens, those who submit to those in authority over us. I think we see something we, we point out, we meditated on it because I think it's important for us to meditate on this before we move forward, is that 1 Peter 2 says this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, living as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We are called to do good. We are called to live as model citizens. Why? Because it silences those who would foolishly question our commitment to the good of our neighbors and the flourishing of our nation. Do we not desire that this nation flourish? We do, don't we? We want to see the flourishing of this nation. Now, there are clear things that have to happen in order for this nation to flourish. Very clear things. And they would clearly be talked about in God's Word. In the midst of all those, we have some, some things in different opinions around every seat, probably, of how some of that is carried out, how that is achieved. Uh, one author I've read recently calls that a, a straight line as opposed to a jagged line. There are straight line connections from key truths in Scripture that we all stand together on, and then there are jagged lines where we look and go, here's the truth, and, and here's a principle in Scripture, and we have to get a jagged line to how it's applied and how it works out in areas that are more difficult to discern, but there are certain issues that are very clear that absolutely promote the flourishing and the good of our country. And those things would promote the good and the flourishing of any country, not just the United States. So that brings us then to ask this question about civil disobedience. It, it causes us to ask the question of, of individuals throughout history, whether or not they were standing in sin. Was, was Corey Ten Boom sinful when she rebelled against the Nazi regime, when she hid Jews in her house, 
her family hiding them and structuring their whole house to defy the Nazi regime? Was she in sin when, when they came and examined her and she said that and she testified and defended her help of the, the mentally disabled, the mentally handicapped. And when challenged on that, she said they are as valuable as any of you sitting here. And she says that in the face of those who were exterminating these individuals. Was she sinful in that? Was she disobeying Scripture? She opposed the Nazi regime. Why? Because life was on the line. Because she stood for life. Or what do we say to the likes of a William Tyndale, a 16th century reformer who defied King Henry VIII and the Pope for the sake of God's Word, being put in the hands of individuals that could read it for the sake of the Gospel. Listen to his passion in life. He says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of Scripture than you do. And he says that in the face of the authorities. He says, I defy you. And in defying the Pope, he was defying the king. It led to him being strangled to death and burnt at the stake. But his final words, you know his final words as he defied the king, as he was taking to the stake? Lord, Open the eyes of the king of England. His defiance of the king was for the sake of the king and for the sake of the nation and for the glory of God. So we ask an important question. When is civil disobedience in order? When is it appropriate? When is it necessary? When must we stand in defiance against those who rule over us, whom we have been told to submit to? A couple things before we look at some specific examples in Scripture. One, we do consider 1 Peter 2 again where it says, Be subject, why? For the Lord's sake. And then it says again to not just live as freedom as, as a, an excuse for doing evil, an excuse for defying because I'm free, I'm free. And you hear that, oh, I'm free to do this so I can defy. Well, Peter says live as people who are free, not using it as a cover-up for evil, but living in what? as servants of God. So what we do is in the context of honoring the Lord. That means that how we defy, how we disobey, how we obey, how we interact and subject ourselves to the governing authority should always be for the Lord's sake. We see the same instruction. We think about marriage. We think about in, in Scripture where it talks about uh, the, the whole idea of slave and owner or uh, employee, employer, in that instance, and then today, and we see again, it's in the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, in the Lord. Because the way we do that is not necessarily contingent on every marital relationship being perfect. Husbands and wives aren't perfect, are we? We know that. But we are called to love our, our wives as Christ of the church. We're called to submit to our husbands as the church submits to its head. The concern is not, again, on the others to concern on us we talked about that last week and so we understand that here that we submit for the lord's sake we should always honor the lord in how we submit but we should also honor the lord in how we stand we talked about last week mentioned briefly matthew twenty two twenty one, where jesus talked about or answering the question about taxes says render to caesar what is caesar's and to god the things that are god 
And I made the comment last week, and I would say again today that this indicates and reminds us that Caesar does not possess absolute authority. There are things that are off limits to him. There are things that are his. There are things that are God's. And we understand that all things are God's. And so we live and we submit and we follow in honor of the Lord. God alone possesses sovereign, universal authority and right. And there are indeed some boundaries that should not be crossed by our leaders. So how do we know? How do we know? I would give you a very simple principle this morning. It's very easy to remember. I've heard this. I don't know who coined this to begin with. It was not original to me. I've heard it said multiple times, and it's been helpful to me, that civil disobedience is in order any time the government forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids. Okay? So that's our principle. Civil disobedience is in order any time government commands something that God forbids or forbids something that God commands. Right? Easy way to remember. Now that can get tricky, can't it? That can get difficult. And we have to have wisdom. And so I want us to look at some examples in Scripture. So first we're going to start in Exodus. Biblical examples of civil disobedience. This passage in Exodus is the one that Pastor Matt read, so we don't need to read the entire passage now. But we know that, that we learn that you know, Joseph had, had served in Egypt. God had sent his people to Egypt for, to deliver them, to help them in their time of need. But there arose a new king over Egypt, and he did not know Joseph. And what does he do? He puts the, the people into slavery. And it says that, that they are ruthless towards them. They deal shrewdly with them. And, and I, would, I would ask you, look, in verses 8 through 14, where's the civil disobedience there? Do you see any hint of civil disobedience? The government is oppressive. The government is treating them unfairly. And we read nothing of civil disobedience. But all of a sudden, in verse 15, things change, don't they? They change. Because why? It says the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them whose name was Shipra and one was Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. What happens here? All of a sudden, life is at stake. Their first biblical example when civil disobedience is necessary is when life is at stake. Very clear throughout Scripture, God is the God of living. He is a God who has created life, and we are to stand for life and defend life. And so here, cruelty is coming upon them. They are enslaved. They are being dealt unfairly. They are being dealt ruthlessly with by their leaders, by those over them. And they don't civilly disobey. But in the moment that life is at stake, they stand for life. What does it say? But, verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the male children live. They defied Pharaoh. And what does it say? What is God's response? Verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives. Because God is a God of life and the people of Egypt had defied that and led and tried to promote the death of the innocent. We stand for life. So first, civil disobedience is necessary when life is at stake. Second, 
Turn over to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. What we learn in Daniel chapter 3 is a second example of when civil disobedience is necessary. When we are told to worship anything or anyone other than God. We're told to worship anything or anyone other than God. We see here in Daniel chapter 3, this is the, the instance where Nebuchadnezzar sets up a golden image. And he says that all are to worship him. If you notice there in verse 4, here's the proclamation. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. They are commanded to worship someone other than God. Now, many of you know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that is the story that ensues. It says in verse 8, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, bagpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Oh, here it comes. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, before we go on, there's something here that we need to observe. What are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego doing? Verse 12. Are they average Run-of-the-mill citizens, where are they serving? They have been appointed over the affairs of the province. They are serving, as you may say in our language, they are serving and working in government, government positions. These, these young men, or I don't know if they were young at this time, but when they came into Babylon were young men, and they were set up, and they were the, the king, king Nebuchadnezzar tried to brainwash them, basically, and give them their worldview, and he trained them for three years before putting them in these positions. And again, they have served in these positions. Do they agree with everything in Babylon? Certainly not. Surely not. But they're serving in those positions. I, I would say they must have been submitting to the rule of the Babylonians. But something crosses the line. Where does that line get crossed? That line gets crossed when they say, you will worship that golden image. And they say, no, not going to do it. See, civil disobedience is in order. It is necessary when we are told to worship anyone or anything other than God. And so verse 13, we read that Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought and they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is this true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And he tells them, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. Justice will be served. I will punish you. This is what's coming. You know what the edict said, and this is coming. Listen to their answer, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is 
able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They defy the king. They stand in disobedience when they are commanded to worship anything other than their God. And they look to him, and they, you note the, the respect in the midst of this. They respect and they honor in the midst of the defiance. O king, they stand and say, we will not worship. We will not worship. We worship God and God alone. Daniel 6, the third example of civil disobedience in Scripture. Daniel 6. We move into the account of Daniel and the lion's den. You, you realize, listen, Dan, we're, we're going to, the sermon follow-up this week, just to give you a preview, the sermon follow-up, we're going to walk through Daniel some more and look at not only these instances of what they did in civil disobedience, but how they did them, because there's a lot to learn about how we interact with authorities that are, that are harsh and ungodly. We can learn a lot in the book of Daniel. We don't have time to do that today, so we're going to do it in the sermon follow-up, so I would encourage you to look at that on Tuesday. But in Daniel 6, we see the third principle, that when worship of God is prevented, when the worship of God is prevented. So in Daniel 6, beginning in, in verse 1, we read this, it pleased Darius to set up over, 100, or over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials. Now, here it is again. This is interesting, right? Of whom, who was one of them? Daniel. Of whom Daniel was one. To whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, you want to see 1 Peter 2? There it is. Do you want to see what it looks like to do good in the midst of a, a ruler and a, a nation that you don't agree with? Daniel evidently did it. He was set so high and he was so distinguished. Why? Because of an excellent spirit in him. And the king, it says, planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Did Daniel agree with everything that King Darius would do? I, I would say certainly not. Did he like everything? No. Did he agree with every policy? Absolutely not. Did he agree with who the king worshipped? No. Darius, by all accounts, is a pagan king. But Daniel was distinguished. And so listen to verse 4. It says, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. They're going, they're looking. Right? They're looking, let's, let's find a way to attack him, let's find a way to trap him. But listen to what it says. They, they could find no ground for complaint of any or any fault. Why? Because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. <laughs> there, there's a man who is living in a way that is, is a model citizen. In the midst of a pagan land and a pagan culture, no error or fault was in him. He was faithful. They couldn't find anything to attack him. He was a faithful person. 
Now listen to what they do. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground of complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with what? The law of his God. Now listen, I, I'm a sinful man. And if people attack me, man, I, it's like, oh man, this isn't good. You know, I, I, if you look hard enough, you, could, you can find dirt on me, I'm sure. Well, I know you can. Well, you got to go back to his high school. But if, if it comes to, you know what, let's attack his God. <laughs> I would just chuckle and go, okay, <laughs> have at it. Go ahead, at- attack the sovereign ruler of all things. Go ahead, see what that does for you, right? And that's what they do. They, they say, man, well, Dan- Daniel, we can't find any fault in him. Let's attack his God. And so the high officials and the satraps come by agreement to the king, and they say to him, they talk to him, they, they say, oh, King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. And they ask him to set this edict, and he does. He says, okay, great. So he signs it, signs it in verse 9. It says, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. Now, look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God for the first time ever. It doesn't say that, does it? No, he got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and he gave thanks before God as he had done previously. A, Daniel was a godly man. A, B, Daniel continued to worship God. It was just something he did. It was his life. It's who he was. He was a worshiper of God. And when this comes out, he doesn't go, oh, now I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to make a scene. I'm going to stand up and, and claim to be something I'm not. No, Daniel just continues doing what he's always been doing. Daniel goes and he bows down and he prays and he defies he was told, you shall not worship anything, anyone. You can't pray to anyone. You're not allowed to worship. And Daniel says, I'm worshiping. <laughs> I'm going home, and I'm bowing, and I'm going to pray, just like I've always done. And he defies the government. He stands in opposition. So when worship of God is prevented, civil disobedience is in order. The fourth example from Scripture. We turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts 4 and 5. When we are commanded not to speak the gospel, we stand in opposition. When we are commanded not to speak the gospel. In Acts chapter 4 through 5, we don't have time to read this whole passage. It goes 4-1 all the way through chapter 5 verse 42. But we see that Peter and John are causing an uproar. It says in verse uh, one two or four, sorry four two that the priests and the captains of the temple of Sadducees were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus. Now note they were not greatly annoyed because Peter and John were unruly citizens that they were illegal uh, doing illegal things breaking the law. They were annoyed because Peter and John were proclaiming the name of Christ. They were living out their faith. They were practicing what they preached. They were declaring Jesus as Savior. 
This is exactly where you have that great declaration of verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The, the leaders are astonished at their boldness. They're struck by their boldness. Then in verse 17 of chapter 4, it says, that they, were thinking, they said, in order that it may spread no further among the people, talking about the gospel, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Effectively, they say, be quiet. Stop. They're putting an end to missions, an end to the gospel proclamation. But in verse 19, it says, but Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, they stand in defiance. Why? Because they fear God more than they fear man. And because the advancement of the gospel will not be hindered. It's the same desire that William Tyndale had. That the advancement of the gospel through the word of God cannot be hindered. It was being hindered. I am going to get it into the language of the common man. That they might know the truth of the gospel. They might know the wonders of God. They might know that there is salvation in none other than God. We flip over to 5. Chapter 5, verse 29, I would encourage you to read this entire passage today. But you get over to 529, and we, we hear this great statement that is the great example and precedent for us as far as civil disobedience in this area. It says, verse 29, Peter and the apostles answer, we must obey God rather than man. So when man calls us to obey them in defiance of something that God has commanded, the choice is God, not man. So anytime the government calls us and commands us to do something God forbids, we defy. If they forbid us from doing something God commands, we defy. Why? Because we must obey God rather than men. Now, these are four examples from Scripture. Four points and we see civil disobedience being necessary. And I say necessary. That's an important word in this conversation. And remember last week we talked about what is our posture. Our posture is first towards civil obedience. We're not postured in such a way, an aggressive stance, right? You know what an aggressive stance is. You can tell when someone's aggressive towards you. You can tell when you watch a, a sports, an athletic contest and you see one team is more aggressive than the other you can tell when you're walking down the street and you look at a dog and that dog has an aggressive stance our stance as believers is not one of aggression where we're looking at every bend ways that we can disobey civilly our posture our stance is civil obedience before it is civil disobedience these are four examples and i want to give you some reminders this morning I hope are helpful when we think about this issue. This question one is this. Is that God's word is the rule and standard. Not our opinions. God's word is the rule and standard. Not our opinions. Now this is difficult and we have to be aware of the difference. We have to be honest with ourselves and look and say where am I just very strong in my opinion there. But maybe there is some wiggle room on how that's worked out. God's word is the difference. Do you think those in Egypt had strong opinions about the way they were being treated? Absolutely. Do you think they agreed with everything in Babylon? No. 
but it was the moment that God's word was defied, the civil disobedience was in order. Remember, civil obedience is the order. Civil disobedience comes when God's word is violated. When something he's commanded is forbidden or something he forbids is commanded. Second thing we need to remember is that we need to work within our present government structure and channels to bring about God-honoring change, laws, and flourishing in our society as best we can. We need to work within those channels as best we can. You know what this means? This means that voting is important. This means that speaking your mind in godly ways and in the right context is important. This means that supporting God-honoring actions and laws and acting upon your convictions is important. But it means that you do so within the channels and the structure that we have here as a nation. That we seek to be model citizens and submit to those who rule over us as we do that. The third thing we need to remember is that we must be careful to maintain our testimony in a way that we are above reproach and in a way that demonstrates love to our neighbors. Listen, I I am so appreciative of God's Word talking about Daniel's character and how he defied. I'm so appreciative that it includes in there his character that he was so well thought of. I'm so appreciative of the information that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thought of highly enough that they were appointed and maintained positions of leadership in the government authority that they, or the government structure they lived in. This means that they were living good, that they were living in a way that maintained their testimony. We must be careful to maintain our testimony. We must be careful to live above reproach. We must be careful to demonstrate love to our neighbors. Fourth, Reminder, we must be prepared to accept the consequences of civil disobedience. There will be consequences. To think that I can civilly disobey, that I can rebel against the state, and then the state not come down and punish me is sheer foolishness. The state has been given the power to punish those who rebel. And so we need to count the cost, remembering that Jesus is always worth it. He's always worth it. However, we also count the cost knowing that Jesus calls us to be good citizens first and only to rebel when necessary. This is not, again, this is not my opinion. This is the clear word of God says to submit three times in Scripture. To submit to our leaders. To submit to authority over us. So when we rebel, we better be ready for the consequences. We better be ready for the lion's den of our day or the fiery furnace of our day. We better be ready for prison. We better be ready for execution. We better be ready to lose tax-exempt status. We better be ready for mockery. We better be ready for beating. We need to count the cost before we civilly dis- civil disobedient, before we do civil disobedience. And I would ask you, some of you in here are thinking, what in the world would be worth that? Let me tell you, Christ is worth that. Truth is worth that. The gospel is worth that. 
So if you sit and you go, I don't know if it's worth it, then I would say look to Christ and trust Christ and follow Christ and know the hope and the beauty of having the joy of his victory flood over you. In Christ, we see that defiance, when necessary, is worth any cost we might pay because he is worth it. So if you don't know that he's worth it, I would call you to Christ today. Trust Christ. Trust Christ. The fifth reminder is that we must not fall into sin in the midst of our civil disobedience. We must not fall into sin. We saw this last week with David and Saul. Remember I told you that David defied Saul, but when he had the opportunity to kill Saul, he did not. Do not fall into sin in our civil disobedience. We want to live in a way that maintains our testimony. So what do we do? How do we know? Here's a few things I would do. One, if you're uncertain about how you should stand, if if this is a moment to stand or a moment not to, when it gets hard and it's hazy and it's gray, what do I do? Here's what I would do. I would seek counsel from someone you respect that may not agree with you. Seek counsel from someone that you say, you know what, they walk with the Lord, they love the Lord, they're passionate about the Lord, they're committed to the Lord, and they may or may not agree with me. I'm not worried about if they'll pat me on the back and say, hey, yeah, you go do that. I'm worried about their walk with the Lord. I'm going to come and I'm going to ask them, is this a time for civil disobedience? Because I know they'll be honest with me and say, yes, it is, or no, I don't think it is. Talk to someone that maybe not agree with you. Second, honestly look and examine yourself to determine if your inclination to disobey is driven by your opinions, your emotion, your simple heart, your political stance, or is it determined by God's clear word? What is driving your inclination to disobey? God's truth or your opinions, emotions, political desires? What's driving that? And then finally, I would ask this question frequently. Am I more passionate about my rights and my freedoms as a U.S. citizen than I am over my godliness as a child of God? Am I more passionate as a patriot than I am as a child of God? Again, a difficult question. This does not mean that we don't defend our rights. It does not mean that we don't fight for constitutional freedoms. But it does mean that we must never do so in a way that will undermine or tarnish the testimony of Christ before men. We do these things in the Lord for the Lord. Listen, we are living in a difficult day. There's no doubt about it. We're living in a difficult day, and it's not a day in which we walk out of here fearful for our very lives. But it is a day that it seems like there are gray areas all around, and we have different opinions, and it's confusing, and it's difficult, and we see culture just running the wrong way down the Romans road. We see our culture doing exactly what Romans 1 says. But we need to understand that that these difficulties are not because of any political party or a political leader. The difficulties are because of sinfulness in our culture, a culture that is pursuing itself and the world and not God. The difficulties that we face are due to the brokenness of sin. We live in a culture that devalues life, questions God's very existence, undermines the trustworthiness of Scripture, distorts God's good design for sexuality, promotes self-centered pride and materialism, and the wisdom of man is seen as ultimate. But I would ask you, has this not been the case since the fall in Genesis 3? Have we not seen this throughout history? Did we not see Satan trying to undermine the very truth of God's word? Did we not read of instances where 
children are sacrificed by false religions or killed by the hands of men for their own power? Do we not see men throughout Scripture decrying God's authority? Do we not see the saints of the Old Testament and the New Testament witness rampant sexual immorality? Do we not see men seeking to elevate himself, themselves and their worship of stuff? Do we not see men promoting the dependence upon wisdom and philosophy of the world? Do we not see that? We've seen that all throughout history. All throughout history we've seen that. And I would ask you then, has God not prevailed through it all? Have we not seen God raise victorious and maintain his victory, maintain his truth through it all? Has his word not continued to prove true through every challenge? Has it not stood the test of time? Has he not promised that he will build his church, that the gates of hell shall not come against it? Has he not promised that? Has he not promised that he will save all who call on the name of Christ? Has he not shown his existence through creation and through the millions of changed lives throughout history? Has he not shown his grace through times of reformation, times of revival in the midst of ungodly cultures? Has he not shown his power in saving men like Daniel, in raising up men like Peter and John, in working in the lives of of midwives to maintain life, defend life, stand for life, save life? Has he not shown himself? Has he not given us revelation, the revelation of John that proclaims that in the end Jesus is victorious, in the end we know who wins the battle. So we live in difficult days. We live in trying days. But we worship the God who reigns over it all. And we worship the God who is powerful to save. So we will not be shaken. It doesn't matter what the future holds. It doesn't matter who leads our nation in 5 years, 10 years, 20 years from now. It doesn't matter what kind of persecution comes upon us. We will not turn from our God. Because our God is faithful, our God is sovereign, our God is gracious. And we understand that all authorities that we ever live under, whether it's here or abroad, whether it's here or you get sent to the mission field and you live on the other side of the world, any authority that you live under submits to him and we will submit to him for his sake. And with all that said, we stand here today and we say let it be known. That if the day demands, we will obey God before man. We will stand upon the truth, the scripture. We will stand for the glory of God. We will worship him alone. We will defend life. We will live for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we worship you and you alone. And God, we need your grace, oh God. We need your strength, we need your wisdom, we need your leading as we seek to live as model citizens in this nation. God, it is not easy, and God, it is not going to get easier because we see that our nation is pursuing everything but you. And God, we know that the only answer is you and so God we need you we need you to come upon us we need you to raise up your church to live faithfully to you to live as good citizens in such a way that we would be distinguished among men that people would look and say they are so distinguished there is a a special spirit living within them we respect them and so we're going to try to attack their God oh God bring that on (laughs) 
We would love for them to try to attack you because you are sovereign and you rule over all things. And so, God, we look to you. We look to you. We ask you to strengthen us and grant us wisdom to know how to live in a way that glorifies you. Help us to know when it is necessary to stand. And God, in every other instance, when we carry about strong convictions and strong opinions and strong desires and hopes, God, let those be measured by our trust in you, our love for one another, and our love for our neighbors. Oh God, let us be patient with all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.